Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the martial arts and anything else he may be involved in. My guest today is a former high school wrestler and teacher who attended UCLA. He was a pro MMA fighter with a record of 5-1, and one, stopped fighting when he was offered the job to host the Discovery Channel's Fight Quest. He was also a co-host during Season 2 and 3 of American Ninja Warrior, has been a commentator for Bellator, UFC, Invicta, and more. He was also a commentator on Monday Night Raw for the WWE and is a current host on Sirius XM's Unlocking the Cage. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Jimmy Smith. How are you doing today, sir? Good. That's a lot, huh? <laughs> it is. So was, you have to like, think about it. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot. Yeah, man. Um, that's good, though. <laughs> I'm also, yeah, well, I'm also currently working for ESPN and Combate. Awesome. So I got, I got three gigs. That's uh, I couldn't find that yeah. anywhere. So that's awesome. That's it's cool. Nuts. Yeah, because that's what I'm currently doing. So, okay. um, yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't check up on, I don't like edit my own Wikipedia page and stuff because uh, there are some errors on there. Okay. But, yeah, I don't really like. I'm just. I'm not that kind of person. So it's yeah. like, and I work for ESPN. I work for Combate. I work for for Sirius XM right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't go out there and and talk about myself. You're like me. You like to stay busy though, too. So <laughs> yeah, but I really like staying busy. So so yeah, all those things right now, man. It's it, it's it's craziness. It's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, kind of how we like to kick the show off. You know, I I know you started in wrestling. I'm just kind of curious. Was wrestling the first any type of martial art or combative sport you were involved in? And if so, what led to that? Kind of what kicked off that interest in you know combative art, combative sports for you, and kind of launched your martial arts journey yeah well the funny thing is is that when i did it wrestling wasn't considered a martial art right right it it was just it was a sport and i I always kind of have like i have uh disputes with people sometimes where they call oh wrestling's a martial art and i was like hurting someone in wrestling is illegal yeah it's called potentially dangerous they stop if you crank somebody's neck you crank somebody's arm they stop it and if you do it again you you get dinged a point you get disqualified so it only became really a martial art when the UFC came around and wrestlers started whooping everybody's butt. Mm-hmm. And then it was, boy, wrestling's a martial art. And I, I'm, I'll, no, it's sport because to me, the definition of a martial art is at the end of the day, hurting somebody is at least part of what you're doing. And if not actively encouraged, if it happens, like if you're doing a point style karate thing and you knock somebody out, oh, well, you're not disqualified, right? Yeah, yeah. So in wrestling, there are a lot of rules to keep people safe because, you know, high school kids do it and, you know, a lot of younger people do it. Mm-hmm. So um, when I started, it was just a sport. It wasn't really considered a martial art. Just got into it in high school. It was the only thing I had, only sport I had really done at all in my yeah. life. So you didn't start till high school? Didn't start till high school. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Um, yeah, which is weird. But it's weird. I grew up in a very isolated, first an isolated place. I grew okay. up in an orange grove till I was nine years old. Oh, so wow. we didn't have a neighborhood with kids and that did sports stuff. My nearest neighbor was a couple miles away. So you just didn't, you're very isolated. I didn't do sports like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I moved to Long Beach, when I was whatever it was, nine or 10 years old, I still had that mentality of, and my parents weren't sports people. So they didn't, it didn't really, my grandfather was a boxer. My dad knew how to box, but they didn't really put me in any direction, you know, for sports or athletics or anything like that. So I kind of just had to do everything myself. I just kind of figured everything out myself. And then once I did wrestling in high school, I went to UCLA. They don't have a wrestling team. And they had a wrestling club where these guys who had wrestled in high school or whatever would get together and just wrestle for fun. We just mess around. And that's when a jujitsu coach walked in and said, Hey, my jujitsu class starts in this room at, you know, seven o'clock, you know, you, you should come check it out. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I showed up and started doing it and loved it. And, and that's kind of what started everything was that. And then me and a bunch of friends at UCLA would rent out a racquetball court and do like mixed martial arts, basically. Like we'd get together and like teach each other stuff and, and spar and, and, you know, do all that stuff. And it was, it was fun, man. I had, I had a good time. And then my professional career started after that, after I graduated. It wasn't originally my intention. It was just something that I thought was fun. What was the original intention? I mean, obviously, you know, it sounds like teacher. you took a 180. So, <laughs> a history teacher. Yeah, okay. I, I was going to be a history teacher. I mean, I, my degree's in history. 
I wanted to go to graduate school and, and get my master's and my doctorate at, at UCLA and, and, and go on from there and teach people. And it didn't end up happening. And mm-hmm. so it just completely changed my life uh, in that because I was getting pretty good at jujitsu pretty quickly. I was mm-hmm. getting really good really fast. But I didn't think about it as a career or a life. And then I didn't get into graduate school at UCLA. And my, my girlfriend at the time was sitting there and I got the rejection letter. And I remember she said, you know, you're getting really good at that fighting thing. Why don't you try that? I swear to God, it's just how it started was, well, I can't do this anymore. I guess I'll do that. And, and I did. And, and here I am, whatever it is, 25 years later. Yeah. So how long had you been doing jujitsu before you decided to make the jump to MMA? Nine months. Seriously? Yeah. It was. Wow. It was like, I, I was messing around at UCLA, uh-huh. just kind of doing it, you know, a couple times. The class was like Tuesday, Thursday or something. And then I started messing around with the kids in the racquetball court. And then I graduated from UCLA and I, I went to Europe for a little while. And when I came back by three months, I did kind of a backpacking thing. And I came back and I'm driving through Huntington Beach, California. And there was a sign that said jujitsu. And I pulled over and I said, hey, I want to check it out. Well, it turned out to be Team Punishment, which was Tito Ortiz and, mm-hmm. you know, Jason Miller and Rob McCullough and Tiki and all these like a ton of pros were training out of there at the time. And they said, yeah, come on in. I came on in and nine months later, my coach calls me. And this is when I was you know, doing it every day. And, and my coach calls me and he goes, um, hey, you want to fight Sunday? It's Friday <laughs> afternoon. And I said, yeah, sure. And it was behind a bar in San Pedro. And uh, they got us all and they lined us all up and they didn't even weigh us. They were just like, all right, you're about the same size. You're going to fight that guy. And I was, all right. and it, I was the 13th of 13 fights. Wow. And I armbarred him in 28, 29 seconds. And I went, okay, I guess I'll do more of this. It was weird. It was just like, that's yeah. how it worked back then. I was like, oh, I guess I'll do that, that's kind of the way it's always been is, is gee, okay, I guess I'll do this. And, and I did it. And once again, here I am. Yeah, it was crazy. And I'm assuming that was before the days of sanctioning and stuff. So, or, or was that, an, or was that an actual sanctioned fight? Oh no, no, no. Okay. MMA wasn't saying like my last fight or my, the one before my last fight, one of them was the first sanctioned fight in California. <laughs> the first sanctioned card in California was wow. like the end of my career, 2005, okay. 2006, yep. something like that. So you had to fight out on Indian reservations. Yep. That's how they got around it. You fought on Indian reservations. And um, you hoped you got paid. You hoped you got paid what he said he was going to pay you because there were no protections because it wasn't sanctioned. I mean, he could just stiff you. And, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. So that's how it worked back. If you got hurt, you're on your own. <laughs> it was a, it was a different world. And so that's how I started my MMA career was in that kind of underground unsanctioned world. You know, and I used to judge that I, I started I judged MMA for about a thousand total fights I judged. And uh, I remember the first probably one to two hundred were unsanctioned. And I remember there were a few times where like a fighter wouldn't show and they get up there with the microphone. And, Anybody out there in the audience want to fight tonight? You know, one hundred fifty bucks. Yeah. I'm like, what happened all the time? And, and then you just think like, back now. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or you'd show up and, and um, it's happened to a, a guy who trained with Juliano Prado, jujitsu guy out of Southern California. And and uh he showed up and they went, yeah, your opponent didn't show up. You got to fight this middleweight. And he was like 155. Wow. And they're like, oh, we got a middleweight for you. And it's either fight or just go home. Like, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so without sanctioning, stuff like that happened constantly. And, and I remember this one guy weighing in. It was one of my opponents, but it wasn't for my fight. He had sold a ton of tickets. And he showed up and he weighed in and, and made weight. And he goes to the promoter and he goes, oh, here are the tickets I sold. You know, and he sold like 200 tickets. And the guy goes, oh, man, I didn't know you sold that many tickets. I wouldn't have had you weigh in. <laughs> Seriously? Like, oh, like, I didn't realize that you sold that many tickets. Ah, you wouldn't have to go through all this. Wow. You know, because it just didn't, you know, you rated in a bathroom scale in the lobby of the hotel. Nobody mm-hmm. was, oh, your opponent already weighed in. He's good. All right, you don't know if they're telling you the truth. You have no idea. So that was the world. It was the, it was the Wild West, man. It was no rules, kind of. Not just in in the cage, but in outside, right? I know one of the ones I judged one time. It I, I won't mention the name, but there was a a bigger name fighter that was fighting a local guy, and the local guy beat him. Every judge had in the winner in the cards, and they the promoter brought all the judges together. It's like we, we can't say this big name lost. He's like, so I'm, I'm going to announce him the winner. And we're like, what? Why are we here? <laughs> and they announce the yeah. other guy the winner. And I'm like, to this day, I'm like, yeah, I know that guy technically has one more loss on his record than he should. So there was a fight that, you know, this is public. I'm not giving anything away. Yeah. Razor Rob McCullough, a guy I used to train with, was taking a guy named Harris Sarmiento, who was a kind of a local guy, fought some decent guys, but never a great fighter. And Harris kept winning and they kept adding rounds, like embarrassingly, where mm-hmm. it was. You know, three rounds, and it was clear that Rob lost. And all right, we have a draw. We're gonna go to another round. They added another. It was like it was just so obvious they were gonna add rounds until Rob won. Wow. <laughs> and I think Harris actually won the fight, but it was like that. It was like embarrassing sometimes. And yeah. and uh, I was told a lot of times for for fights, like if you're in another guy's home territory, you better kill him. 
You better make this abundantly clear that you won because you ain't getting a decision here. And that was how it was. Yeah, it was very, very, very difficult. Let's put <laughs> yeah, it that way. definitely. So then it looks like you over about a, what, a two, two to three year period, you had your six fights. Is there is there one that okay. stands out out of those pro fights? Yeah, there are a few. I fought James Wilkes, who won the Ultimate Fighter. Mm-hmm. And this was early in both of our careers. I think it was my second fight. Yep. I don't remember his first or second fight. But the funny thing is, is that we had met like three weeks before at a Machado grappling event. And for some reason, I don't remember why we started talking to each other. We're sitting there in the rules meeting and they said something. I was like, oh, that's weird. The guy goes, yeah, isn't it? I forget, I forget why. But we ended up talking at the tournament. So mm-hmm. we're sitting there waiting for our matches. And we're just sitting there, you know, shooting the shit. We're both by ourselves. And back then, you didn't necessarily know who you were fighting when you got a fight. So I showed up to, it was a King of the Cage or Gladiator Challenge or something like that. And I saw James. I said, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, oh, good, man, good. And we're looking at the thing. Oh, who are you fighting? And we turned down. Oh, fighting each other. And we ended up sitting next to one another in the rules meeting. So we're, we're talking or whatever. And then the promoter, I think it was Ted Williams, said, okay, uh, we're going to stand up so you can see who your opponent is. And they, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, and they stood up. And then it went, Jimmy Smith. And I stood up. He goes, James Wilkes. And he stood up next to me, and everybody started laughing <laughs> because we were sitting next to each other. And Ted's like, oh, you guys getting along? I'm like, yeah, until tomorrow, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> and um, in the fight itself, I got a knee bar on James, but as we were rolling around and I'm trying to get the knee bar and he's hitting me like with everything he's got to get out of it, I felt my knee pop bad. Mm. I was like, it's one of those like you hear. Oh yeah. And I went, oh crap. And I got the knee bar and I won. And by the time I got out of the cage and I was, I couldn't walk anymore. It was that bad, even with all the um, adrenaline and everything. So it's funny. People always tell me like, man, you were so tenacious for that knee bar in that fight. You wouldn't let it go. Number one, that's just how I grapple anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once I get some nice, go for it. And the other thing was I couldn't stand up. I knew if we stood up, I would be limping and he'd kill me. And so it was either finish this knee bar, you're going to lose. And I I finished it and I won. But I was, you know, one-legged at that point. So that fight certainly stands out in in a big way. That's cool. Just everything about it was weird, you know. That's crazy. Yeah, and someone with lifelong knee injuries, I I, I feel your pain on that one. Yeah, that's, I, that. yeah. I, I had the knee pop thing once, and that's it's not good. So then during that time you were pro fighting, were you still training in jiu-jitsu or were you pretty much focusing on MMA at the time? No, I was competing in jiu-jitsu a lot. Yeah, okay. so which was kind of the problem, I guess, when people are like, you know, what would you have done differently and all this stuff. Back then, there was an ecosystem of gyms that could get you – through a local fight, but they couldn't get you to the next level. They couldn't get you to the UFC. They couldn't get you to pride. They couldn't mm-hmm. get you all the way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that ecosystem is almost gone now, but there were a lot of little teams that were pretty good. And I was in one of those little teams that didn't really have a whole lot of great guys and couldn't really do that much for me. And I kind of patched everything together. I could get, I had a good striking coach, but it wasn't, there weren't a lot of MMA guys to help me. And, and, um, what would I have done differently is I, I if you're going to get to the next level, you've got to make that commitment to a big team. You almost certainly have to get, if not to American Top Team, be affiliated with American Top Team or mm-hmm. AKA or Jackson Wink or yep. any of the big teams, you know, Sarah Longo, whatever it is, because you're going to lose to those guys because they're in a shark tank every day. They're getting much better every day. And if you are the king of, you know, you're the big fish in your little pond, you're not going to get as good as those guys are going to get. And I got pretty much as far as I could have gotten without that backing. But that is something that, you know, I tell people, say, hey, man, you got you to jump in with the Sharks and really be part of that environment or else you're not going to make it. That was a big thing. After your your sixth fight, had you been thinking about hanging it up or was you know, the offer for to hosting Fight Quest, was that the complete reason you gave it up? That was the complete reason I gave it up. How did that come about? How did they find you? I also didn't know, by the way, that I was hanging it up. I, n- I never made a conscious choice to go, this is it. Oh, okay. What happened was I got a fight. <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's an interesting story. A promoter called me named, named uh, oh, God, Jamie. His first name's Jamie. I forget his last name. Okay. Anyway, he called me, and, and we had grappled against one another. So I knew him, and he knew me, and da, 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 we, we were friendly. And he said, uh I got a great opportunity for you. Now, the code in MMA, by the way, is great opportunity means you are the underdog, and this guy is, like, undefeated. Yeah. Great opportunity for you, Jimmy. If you win, this will be great for you. You probably won't. And one of the things I tell fighters now, I said, you're either an, an easy fight or a great opportunity. Your opponent is – if you're being told, oh, I got a great opportunity for you, your opponent is being told, got an easy fight for you. <laughs> right? You're one or the other. Yeah. Usually on the local level. 
So anyway, they said this guy's Jason Chambers is his name. He's got a contract with the UFC. This is kind of his fight right before he gets really big and goes in the UFC. He's hosting this show called Human Weapon for a history channel. And they travel around and they do different martial arts in different countries. This guy's going to be really famous and really big. And he's this good looking guy. If you beat him, man, that'll be awesome for you. And the first thing I thought is, man, that's a cool gig, right? I was like, oh, that sounds like a cool job, man. (laughs) And so (laughs) I take the fight. I win the fight in the first round. I heel hook him and I beat him. Walk out of, of the cage, go home. And I got a call from a teammate of mine who has since passed away named Joe Camacho. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's this dude, there's this audition for this show where you go around and you do different martial arts in different countries. And I thought, oh, shit, I injured Jason and they're looking for a replacement. And I felt terrible oh, wow. because there's this kind of unwritten code mm-hmm. in MMA and martial arts that you can hurt somebody. You never want to take food out of somebody's mouth, right? Like. I'll break your knee. I'll do whatever I have to to win. You don't want that person laid up to the point where they can't you know, work anymore. Like right. that, you don't want to. You will if you have to, but you don't want to, right? And I immediately thought because they described the exact same show Jason was on, and so I was like, oh man, I you know I injured him, and then I started realizing I called the hey call this producer in New York and do a phone interview. I called him, did a phone interview. They really liked me, and I started realizing it was a different show. Because I know Jason's had already shot at least some of the episodes. Mm-hmm. And this thing was shooting, I forget when I did the audition, but we started, we started shooting November, I want to say, 2006. So it hadn't shot yet. So as they're talking to me, I started realizing it's a different show that has pretty much the same premise. If you remember Human Weapon and, and Fight Quest, they, they had the same yep. premise. And they did an audition at my gym in Southern California. And I crushed the audition quite well. And so... What's funny is, I mean, I got it almost immediately and the audition and, and partly it was I had studied history. So what I would do is I would just talk about the history of wherever, whatever country they told me to, to be in. And I would describe something in that country that I knew about historically. And I was pretend I was in front of it and then we were doing the style and they were just like, all right, you're in. Now, at the end of the audition, the producer like pulled me aside and goes, as much as I can tell you, you got it, you got it. He said, I got to go to New York and I got to do some things, talk to some people, whatever. He goes, but you're, you're our guy basically. Nice. So I got cast first and then they brought Doug, my co-host out to see if we got along, see if we clicked and it worked. And it did. We got along great. We hung out in Venice together. He's a really great guy. And that was the start of Fight Quest. But I didn't think that would be it. I didn't know, by the way, it's my first gig in television. Mm -hmm. We shot from November, 2006, we shot the pilot to spring 2008. Wow. I didn't realize it would take that long. I, I didn't know. That's crazy. You know, it's crazy, but that's how it worked. Mm-hmm. There were delays. There were, obviously, you shoot the pilot, and then it gets greenlit, and then da 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 But I didn't know how long this kind of stuff took and, and what it would take out of me, and da 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 And by the end, it was, you know, I was kind of on a different track by the end. By the end, in 2008, I got a call to do commentary for a, a promotion called M1 Global that was doing stuff all over the world. And they said, hey, could you fly to Amsterdam next week and be our color commentator? And I went, yeah, sure. (laughs) And flew out there, did it. They liked me. I got the job. So I started doing commentary work at the same time I was doing Fight Quest. So it was was just, by the time it ended, my life was just in a different place. And it wasn't that I, boy, I'm never going to do this again. I I never thought that way. Mm -hmm. It was just, that's how it ended up, you know? And, And also... When Fight Quest started, they paid me more for my first episode than I made my whole career of MMA by double wow. at least. Okay. So I, it was also it just didn't come. You didn't make a lot of money in MMA at the time. Yeah. So it wasn't like I'm going to be Conor McGregor. The guy didn't exist. We didn't, you know. So it was one of those things where I remember Eve Edwards is, is a friend of mine talked about in the ten years he was in MMA, he made half a million dollars. Wow. All right, do the math. That's a teacher's salary. Yeah. He made fifty grand a year for ten years. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah. Well, I made way more than that doing fight quests. Yeah. So, you know, it, it just didn't make economic sense for me to to go on the fight track when I was already on the TV track and, you know, had a much more secure future in life and everything. So it wasn't I decided to retire necessarily as much as I was in a different place by the time everything ended, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Talk a little bit about Fight Quest. Just looking through some of the episodes, I mean, you got to travel to China, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, France, South Korea, Brazil, Thailand. Just talk about some of those and those experiences and any of those styles that you got to fight against when you were there that really had an impact on you and maybe you started training in some of them or, or, or they kind of stuck with you a little bit. There was almost always something I could take out of a style. 
Okay. Right. There's almost some training technique or something they did where I was like, oh, that's cool. I got to start doing that. The thing is, I think that what, what I take away from Fight Quest in general and most is that people do martial arts for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah. And one thing about MMA or jujitsu or kickboxing, Muay Thai, whatever, is, is that idea that what would actually work and what's really effective and what is, well, people do martial arts for all kinds of reasons. So some people, the, the effectiveness of the style isn't really their thing, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's the beauty of the style or it's, it, I like the mental aspect or I like the spiritual aspect or I like, you know, people do stuff for all kinds of reasons. And if it's just, you know, what is most effective, sure. Then you don't have a ton of options, but if you want to do martial arts for a, a wide variety of reasons, there are a wide variety of styles. Also, too, I was talking to a guy who did, he was one of the Wing Chun guys that I, I trained with in China. Uh, we were in Hong Kong. And he told me this story. He got robbed on an ATM. He was getting money on an ATM, and a guy, you know, came up to rob him. And he just, like, chain punched the guy right into the ground. Jeez. Now, when they tried to chain punch me, I beat the piss out of him. Oh, wow. Right? I mean, I, you know, if you try to chain punch a, a kickboxer, you can get killed because it's just, like, it's this circular punch where you can't defend the left hook. It's, it's really bad. The point of the story is do Hapkido kicks work? Yeah, if you've never seen a kick before yeah. and you train Hapkido and, and you jump kick a guy and he does not know what the fuck's going on, you knock him right out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's what martial art works. Well, if you have, most people don't know anything. Yeah. Most people know <laughs> nothing. They don't know anything. So if you throw a really fast Kung Fu punch against someone who tries to rob you, doesn't know anything about hand-to-hand combat, it's going to work. It's going to work fine. Mm -hmm. So people have this idea of what works. Well, I'm not taking on... A Muay Thai champion, am I? Yeah. Right? I'm not taking on Anderson Silva. So that's another way to see martial arts. And that's why I tell people is, guys, a lot of stuff works. If the other guy doesn't know anything, you're comparing your skills to people who really know what the fuck they're doing. And most people on the street have no idea. So some crazy Kung Fu kick, they're going to stand there and like watch and go, what is he? Boom. And you're going to knock him out. <laughs> you do that to me, I'm going to take you down and break something on you. Okay. Yeah. But I'm a black bone jiu-jitsu. Most people aren't. <laughs> Yep. Most people have no idea. So that's another thing I say, too, is that hey, what's most effective for the street and all this stuff. And, and I always say, you know, most people don't know anything. So anything mm -hmm. can hypothetically be effective. Right. Mm -hmm. The other thing I say is whatever the more extreme the attack, the less someone's done it in real life. Get right. what I'm saying? Yeah. When I did Krav Maga in Israel. You heard all these stories. Oh, man, you know, we, we trained to pull somebody's eye out. We trained. And the first thing it says, you ever pull anybody's eye out? <laughs> well, no. Well, then you're talking out of your ass. You have <laughs> no idea whether or not what, you, you know, we trained to kill. Have you ever killed anybody with your bare hands? <laughs> no. Well, then you're guessing. You're assuming. Get what I'm saying? Oh, definitely. Right. Like, like, like someone who goes to a shooting range and shoots, which I've done since I was a kid. It's a big difference between that and hunting, like shooting a moving target that doesn't want to get shot, you know, or like being quiet and sneaking up on it or whatever the deal is, right? Is a world of difference from shooting a deer picture that isn't moving is very different than shooting a deer that will smell you and start running, yeah. you know? And that's it too, where how do you know you could break somebody's arm, Jimmy? Because I have, I have in a tournament. If you don't tap, I'm going to break your arm and I have, if you don't tap to my heel hook, I'm going to break your knee, which I have. Have I choked somebody out? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. So I know what I do works because I've been all the way with it. You talk to a Muay Thai fighter and they go, how do you know that head kick will knock somebody out? Because I've knocked people out with it <laughs> in an actual Muay Thai fight. So there's always that. Whenever somebody says they can do something deadly and they haven't killed somebody, they're guessing. Yeah. You know, they're guessing. They don't know. You know? So I've run into a lot of that too. You know, I do this deadly technique. Ever killed anybody with it? With your death touch? All right. Shut the fuck up. So... <laughs> There's that too. And also there's a line between like what you're being sold and what's being delivered. Okay. Like right. if you do Tai Chi for the, the breathing and the energy and the, the whatever, right. And the health, they're not going to tell you that you're safe in a street fight with Tai Chi. They're not, they're, they're not going to sell you that. What bothers me is people who get sold a bill of goods. Yeah. That is inaccurate, right? You're going to be safe with this. And I've taught self-defense. I've had people show me things like, no, you won't be safe with that. Like that won't help you. Doing Taibo three days a week won't help you because you're not hitting a real thing and you don't know how to do that. And da, 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 da. Like there are a million reasons why. And you have to know what will help you and what won't help you or what's effective, what's not effective. So there are a million different martial arts, but, but know why you're getting in and what that style does for you. Mm -hmm. And that was something I had to, I, you know, understood as I did all these different martial arts is people do them for all different kinds of reasons. And as long as the reason lines up with the style you're doing, it's great. How long did you spend with each style per, like per episode roughly? 
we were in country 13 days, but that oh. is travel, setting up, mm-hmm. da, 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 and then flying out. The actual style was like five days. Okay. I had five days. Wow. And um, the problem is the styles that were not as legit, we had to kind of figure out how to make it look more interesting. Get what I mean? Because right. like there were problems with certain styles that just didn't have a lot of contact or a style that had this or that. We had to figure out, all right, what's the hook here? How do we make this interesting? Mm-hmm. And the styles that were more legit were like inherently a little more interesting. And the only rub there was how to ramp up because you don't ramp up in five days. Like you, I can't get fight ready in five days, right. but I had a fight at the end. So it's how much can I do without being just a mess in the final fight, right? Because if you get injured early, that's it. Like I, I can't heal in five days. So stuff like that, right, is, is kind of how to balance the last five days before fighting MMA. You don't do anything. You're cutting weight. You're literally like doing yoga stuff like all right stay flexible stay this you're not you're not sparring hard you're not running hard unless you have to cut weight all the hard work's done weeks before that so it was this idea of like when i did um kung fu in the shaolin temple in china the first day they put me through these stretches that they did with like 12 year old kids (laughs) i'm not a 12 year old kid and (laughs) it it pulled like a ton of tendons in my legs and so i was limping the rest of the time for five days, it was limping because they just wrecked my tendons. And yeah. so stuff like that, like you tried not to like destroy yourself on the first day, okay? you know, because you didn't have time to get over it. When I, when I went to Brazil and, and, and went to the Gracie Humata original school, everybody in the room fought me for three hours my first day. Wow. And I was like, all right, I got hazed and that's cool. It happens. <laughs> nope, I've been through it before. No big deal. Second day, same thing from a different position. And then kept training, got sicker than I've ever been in my whole life. Ooh. Because they wanted a shot of me swimming, mm-hmm. and they had me swim in this area of Ipanema Beach that they found. I found out later you're not supposed to swim out there because mm. there's shit in the water. Dang. And I got super duper sick, and they had a IV me. They, wow. I went to the emergency room in Brazil, and I was throwing up and and shitting all over the place. And they took me to the hospital in Brazil, and I fought the next day. Jeez, against a murderer. He was amazing. This purple belt, and I was a purple belt at the time, mm-hmm. and he was the one guy who gave me just a ton of problems. His st- like, I did really well against, you know, a lot of the brown belts and, and, and purple belts. I was rolling with this guy just gave me a ton of trouble. And of course, he's the guy that they had me fight. And also, another thing is, because of the TV show, we had to fight for like a half hour to give them enough footage to cut together to look interesting because it's jujitsu. So there's a lot of holding and, you know, people don't really understand what's going on. So we had to fight way longer than you'd normally fight in a jujitsu match. And I'm like seeing stars and like, whoa, you know, doing that, trying to finish the show. So a lot of stuff like that. Like I'm just fighting the environment I'm in. I'm mm-hmm. just trying to make it through some of them, you know, okay. depending on. So, yeah, a lot of that. And I know a lot, of, a lot of fans of the show thought it was canceled way too soon. So with all these reboots happening, if they were to contact you and say, hey, we want to bring it back, would you want to be involved in any way? Or is that just part of your life you won't want to visit again? No, I'd love to be involved in it. I can't do that stuff again. Right. <laughs> right. I have an artificial hip. I'm 46 years old. I can't do what I did when I was 29. So, but to be involved in it in some way, like yeah. take somebody through it and like mentor, like, you know, I'm kind of the, the coach, you know, yeah, or go be around. The coach or whatever. the host or, yeah. 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 Be part of it would be great. Okay. That'd be cool. Yeah. One of the questions I get asked all the time is kind of why didn't it last? Mm-hmm. Well, oh, why? You know, why? What happened? Numbers weren't very good. It goes, it doesn't, you know, it's a great show. And I was like, network executives don't watch the show and go, great show or bad show, or yeah. I like this, or I don't like this. They get a sheet that says numbers on it. Here's yeah. how many people watched it, you know, and if it doesn't hit the number they expect, that's it. So I know painful experience with television. It, it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the quality of a product as much. If people will watch the Kardashians, give them more Kardashian, <laughs> yeah. right? Just whatever they like, give them more of that. And yep. that's what they do. And the numbers weren't there. And at the time we were on Discovery, I think the president changed like three times or something. So that was another thing that killed us was we were kind of the pet project of the guy who wasn't there anymore. Mm. By the time we were on air, he wasn't there. And the person who came in was like, eh, I'm not a huge fan of that show. And just they put us on whatever it was, Friday nights or something where nobody watches television. And that was it. And so that's another thing is that. The idea, like, this is our special thing. Well, the next president doesn't feel that way. And that's kind of how it went for us, is is we got basically one season out of it, and that was it. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So, yeah, yeah, that's the way it went. So is that around the time you got American Ninja Warrior then? No, that was a bit later. Okay. I got Bellator. Right as Fight Quest, where we knew 
for sure there wasn't going to be more Fight Quest. I got a call to do Bellator. And okay. what had happened was I was working for M1 as a commentator. And then a bunch of people who had left M1 had gotten hired by Bellator. And when they needed a color guy, they said, you should try Jimmy Smith. And Bjorn Rebney, the guy who was running Bellator, called me when we did a phone interview. And I knew everyone in the tournaments. Either I had trained, you know, I trained with them, I fought against them, I had whatever. I knew them. I just, I just knew everybody. And so whenever he would bring up somebody, I said, oh yeah, well, here's why I think he's going to do well. Here's why I think he's not going to do well or whatever the deal was. And he went, okay, it sounds like you're our guy. And I remember the second Bellator we did, I believe, was in Chicago. Okay. And the check for the first Bellator hadn't come in yet because they, they pay you like however many weeks it is afterward. And I had literally no money, like <laughs> literally no money. And I every day I would go to where they were setting up, it was at the Chicago Theater, where they were setting up the fight. And they had like a little catering table there. And I would go in there and eat every day <laughs> and like just make a sandwich, whatever it was. And I just was literally out of money and I hadn't started making money from Bellator yet. But just that whatever week I had nothing in my bank account. Wow. And I was just like eating at the venue every day because I had no money. It was just, I, I remember that just so distinctly that that was the situation in my life at that time. So that's what happened was like, right. As everything started running out, I just, I got the Bellator gig just in time. Nice. And I worked with them for till 2018, starting until the end of 2017. Wow. And that was 2009, 2010. So like seven years I was with them. And then uh, Ninja Warrior was in the middle of that. I forget what years I did Ninja Warrior, but I did two years of Ninja Warrior before it went to NBC. And well, what was that like? Because I mean, I'm a huge fan of that show. And I'm just, first of all, did you ever get to try any of the obstacles? And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what, what your thoughts on it. And if you, what your thoughts on what it was when you hosted it to what it's become now. Yeah, it was nuts. What it was, a few things. Well, let me start with, with what it was then. What it was then was a Japanese show mm -hmm. that we were trying to get Americans to compete in. Right. So the, the, the show I did was these people are going to run through this course. They're going to qualify for the final in Japan. Right. So it was this isn't our show. This is their show. But we're qualifying people with this run through it. And Matt Eisman and I, who's still the, the host. Yep. We kind of made it up because it was the first time it was presented as some kind of sport, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so it wasn't wipeout where the goal is to watch them fall. It's yeah. can they really do it? Can they do it fast? And this kind of gymnastic competition, essentially, which is what it was. So we were, we would sit there with the producer and go like, all right, so how are we supposed to do this? You know, is this a sport? Is it this? Is that? Is it a competition? Right? Because all those things have slightly different angles on them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how we called it because I want to say my first year, I think both years, I don't remember, they ran the course and then they were on a reality show together to determine the last five who would compete in that's Japan. Right. The boot camp. Right? That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like this boot camp thing. Yep. And I wasn't at the boot camp. Matt was. Okay. So Matt hosted the boot camp. And then I went to Japan with everybody to watch them run the course course. Yep. Sasuke. Yeah. Sasuke. <laughs> and uh, it was a like a 23-hour day. Wow. We got there at 6 in the morning. We stopped shooting at 4 in the morning. It was just unbelievable how long the day was. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it was when I was there. That's what it was. And then you learn real quick how this business is because it then went to NBC and became huge. Yeah. And it was funny because I don't have an agent. And one of the reasons I don't have an agent is every experience I've had with agents is they want to help themselves, mm -hmm. not you. And I remember there was a scheduling conflict with, with the second, I think I want to say the second year I did um, American Ninja Warrior. They wanted to do a show the same, same day as the Bellator. And I said, well, I got to, you know, I got to do the Bellator show. And my agent goes, well, you know what? You should probably quit this Bellator thing because this thing could take you, you know, this could be huge. And da -da 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 -da. <laughs> now they ended up moving the shoot date of American Ninja Warrior anyway. So I, I didn't have to choose, but oh my God, you should totally quit doing this stupid MMA thing you're doing and do this Ninja Warrior thing. Well, as soon as it went to NBC, NBC went, nah, we don't want that guy. We want this other guy. Wow. And as soon as they do that, agent stops calling you. Mm -hmm. well, that was it. I, was, I never heard from the agent again. And it's one of those things where like, don't listen to people who, yeah, of course they wanted me to keep doing Ninja Warrior because they make money off that. They don't yeah. make money off my commentary gig for Bellator. So you have to think about what's better for you. And, you know, it was, that was the situation, right? It, it was, it was, yeah, NBC, we want a football guy or whatever the hell it was like, you know, 
And how well you do your job doesn't necessarily matter to somebody. It, it, how famous is this person? Well, right. he's an MMA guy. Ah, it's not famous enough. Get a football guy. <laughs> and you know, that was kind of how it ended for me for Ninja Warrior. Yeah. It was a okay. fun experience. Though. I loved it. Did you ever get to try any of the obstacles? Yeah, I did. The first season I did, or the first, like, what happened was they had a an obstacle course, and the last thing was the warped wall. Yep. And then people who got, a, you know, the top 10, they added another set of obstacles to the end of that with the salmon ladder and all this stuff. Yeah. And what I did was I ran the first part of the course, and I got through it. Nice. Did everything. Wow. Got all the way up the warped wall. And then I got to the, that second part. And one thing you notice for the people that really do well, mm -hmm. they're about 140 pounds. They're not <laughs> – I am. I was at the time like 180, and I jumped on the salmon ladder. And what happens is when you jump on the salmon ladder, your body starts swinging. Mm -hmm. You can't leap while your body is swinging. You have to wait for your body to stop swinging. And by the time you stop swinging, you are tired, right? Yeah. So I got – I did like two rungs of the salmon ladder, and then I fell. And – the guy told me, he goes, yeah, 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 you got to jump. You can't jump forward because you'll start swinging, right? You have to jump down so you don't swing to kill your momentum, right? So there are these little tricks that you just don't know if you never run one of these things. Yeah, mm -hmm. You don't you have no, no idea. I don't have a salmon ladder at my house. I don't know, <laughs> you know? So it's things like that where you can't – the people who have something like this at home or have run it before have just a huge advantage yeah. over someone trying to size it up and figure it out as they're doing it, you know, which I was doing. I had no idea. So, yeah, I got to run – I, I passed, once again, the original course, and then I fell on the whatever, the five they added afterwards. I forget exactly what they were. Mm -hmm. But so you realize the difference <laughs> trying to move your body around. If you're 190 and they're 40 pounds, like it's a scale you lose on television. You don't know how big somebody is, right? Yeah. And the one thing I told people, oh, man, about running the Ninja Warrior course, I go, those guys are 5'6", 140. They're <laughs> not – yeah, they can jump and grab that thing with one hand and go – because they're, they're freaking – Built like they're 17. I go, it's it's a different world than like a grown man who's 30, right? He's yep. 185. It's, it's a different world. That was fun. It was, I had a lot of fun doing it. But yeah, that was what I learned there. It's like there's a reason gymnasts and UCLA, when I was at UCLA, that a great gymnastics team, mm, men's yes, gymnastics. Yes. They were all five, six. They're just, <laughs> they're little midget guys who are just all muscle who can, you know, hang from a whatever for an hour because they don't weigh anything you know it's like it's a different you know yeah so that that all the guys who made it had gymnast builds you know pretty much that's cool I just, what an experience like i said I'm, I'm a huge fan of the show and i actually went to a taping when they came to oh, minnesota cool. a few years ago and i didn't realize at the time that it was like a complete overnight thing and we got there at like 6 p.m and we left at like 4 30 a.m it was it was a long it's day forever they really yeah. cut them down yeah they really cut them down now but it was and that's fun. another thing well that's another thing matt and i when we did our first season, we called almost everything live. We called it as live, meaning we just, as they were running through the chorus, we would talk and, and mm -hmm. they usually use that cut. By the time, the, the more network something gets, the more cooks are in the kitchen. Definitely. And we spent, I think we did the math one time. I spent three hours in the studio for every hour I did live. Wow. Could you make that wow just like three seconds before? There's one, you know, <laughs> can you just, and it's like, well, it doesn't sound live anymore because, you know, everything's perfect. Yeah. You know, like real life's not perfect. But that was another thing is that, is that we spent a ton of time, I remember season two, in the studio, just, just redoing things because the live call wasn't exactly what they wanted. So I can't imagine what it's like now. I, I don't think they do anything like now. That's crazy. So talk a little bit about your black belt test. When did that happen and kind of what was that experience like getting your BJJ black belt? <laughs> That's hilarious. They don't test. It seems to be different. I, I've talked to some where there actually was a test and some where there actually wasn't. So it's, All, it's most old school and I'm Carlson Gracie. So I'm, I'm yeah, an old school definitely. team. And, and yeah. And my uh, instructor got his black belt from Carlson Gracie. He came up with uh, Vitor Belfort and Rilo Bustamante and all those guys and, and uh, Ricardo Laborio. So he's an old school guy. Okay. Jimmy, your black belt. Here's your black belt. Nice. Thank you. It's your certificate, the black belt. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> That's Welcome. Well, there you go. <laughs> black belt now. So I never don't test for I know I've never tested tested for a belt in my life. Yeah, they just do not brown the Thank you. Thanks, coach. Do you still you still belt? compete or no? I haven't competed since I was a purple belt. You haven't. Um, okay. God, I think the last the last time I competed, I competed last year I had an MMA fight, it was two thousand six, and I won the North North American Championships. I won that one purple belt. Okay. And then I had a fight in Michigan in MMA after Fight Quest, so like 2009 or eight or something, and they ended up getting their license pulled last minute, and they had to do a, make an amateur event. Well, I couldn't fight an amateur event because I was a professional, mm -hmm. and so they had me and this guy who I was supposed to fight, who was a multiple-time Michigan State champion in wrestling, they had us grapple. 
I said, well, I can, you know, you guys can't fight, but I can put on a professional grappling match. And I armbarred him. Nice. That's the last time I competed. Was, okay. Was, was I a brown belt then? I don't know. Nah, probably not. I think it was just a purple belt. Okay. But that was the last time I competed. And then uh, my schedule just, just doesn't allow me to train the, the five or six days a week I need to train to get yeah. back into competing, you know, because those guys, somebody asked me, like I was at the Miami Open helping out my coach. Uh, my coach ended up actually winning the Miami Open and the Open Division. I'm going to brag for him. Mm-hmm. And some of the guys, oh, man, does it make you want to compete again? And I said, do you see the name on that gi? And they went, yeah. I go, that's him. <laughs> that's him. You know, Hanato Silva Jiu-Jitsu. That's Hanato Silva. So all these guys, that's all they do all day. Yeah. That's all they do is Jiu-Jitsu. I don't have time to just do jujitsu. Right. I, I can't do this anymore five days a week. I'm lucky if I do it. Today was my fourth day a week training in jujitsu. I did open mat this morning. That's not easy for me. I happen to be able to grapple this morning because my family is in Miami visiting grandma. So there, I was able to open mat. I just can't do open mat. So I'm not going to beat a guy who's, you know, it's funny. Uh, Chelsea, I made Chelsea and laugh. One time we were talking. I said, dude, that guy's taking the skin off his chicken, man. And he started laughing. He goes, man, that's a great way to put it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you know where that's from, by the way? No, I don't, actually. Point Break. Remember Point Break? Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. And he goes, I demand that all my all my agents practice physical fitness. I take the skin off chicken, sir. <laughs> wow. That's so awesome. That's always my metaphor for somebody who takes it really seriously. The guy's taking the skin off his chicken. You know what I mean? Yep. I take the skin off chicken, sir. <laughs> Fucking counteries, right? That's awesome. So that's always my metaphor. Dude, that guy's taking the skin off his chicken. He's like measuring his protein and cutting weight. Like, dude, I, I, I have two kids. <laughs> I, you know, I, kind of, I don't have, you know, time. I, I can't, you know, and, and these guys and, oh, but your masters. I'm like, you know who's masters? Ted at A, Shaolin. Mm-hmm. Friggin' every like ass kicker when I was coming up, they're all my age now, and they're still multiple time world champions. And yep. and you know they take it really seriously, and I can't. You know, if you didn't go out there with Megaton Diaz and think, oh, I got an old man in front of me, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Shaolin's in his forties. Shaolin was smoke, smoke most. 25 year olds that are that are really into it can't roll with that guy you know yep yeah so it's just I'm, it's it's not a lifestyle which which it has to be yeah. that i can practice anymore it's like hey don't you want to shack going on the nba court right now so, yeah it was great a while ago but <laughs> exactly can't keep up with those kids anymore you know so yeah it, that's kind of my attitude and like you said you're super busy i mean so kind of talk about your current projects you, you mentioned espn you have the serious xm thing uh, yeah, so yeah, kind of just it. talk a little bit about each of those and what, you know, kind of where people can hear you now. Yeah, well, SiriusXM is my daily gig. Two to five, Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith on SiriusXM okay. Fight Nation. Nice. So, yeah, it's really cool. I, I talk about MMA three hours a day, five days a week. That's cool. It's incredible when you think about it. And then I work for ESPN International every Wednesday. I do a thing called UFC Fight Camp. It airs on Thursday. I shoot it on Wednesday. It airs on Thursday. For ESPN International, it's called UFC Fight Camp. So we kind of preview the upcoming fight, and then we talk about last week's fight and do a bunch of fun stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm i on it with Phil Murphy, who is fantastic. He's a host at ESPN. And then I do Combate, which is a Latin American promotion, and it's shot out of Miami, which is about an hour from me. And usually Saturdays, but sometimes Sundays, is when I shoot that, and that airs on Paramount Plus and all over Latin America. It is it is really big in Latin America. I do the English commentary. Okay. Wow. So those are my three gigs right now, man. Those are the three things I'm doing that take up about six days a week. Okay. Uh, I rarely get a day off or I get maybe one day off. <laughs> nice. So that's that, that's my life at the moment. It's I just work at a lot of different things because, you know, we, I worked for Bellator for, for seven years. It looks like they're looking for a buyer. And if you're dependent on Bellator, you now have to figure out what you're going to do. Yeah. And that's always the difficulty with 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 kind of having the one gig or being somebody's guy. You know, like when I was with UFC 2018 at the end of 2018, they said, oh, we're just going with former fighters. So yeah. you're unemployed. And it's just you just got to go oh, crap start over. And you learn from those experiences of that is not happening to me again. I'm, I'm not working for one person whose my employment is kind of at their whim. Right. And, you know, I do three things because if one goes away, I'm OK. Yeah. You know, I'll be all right. That makes sense. I mean, as someone with a former radio, you know, former radio guy, 
any type of broadcast is just so unstable. You always have yeah. to have a backup plan, unfortunately. I, mean, I, I did radio for over, I mean, technically I still dabble on radio, but I did radio for over 20 years. Most I made in radio was 11 bucks an hour. <laughs> so I know. Isn't yeah. it? And that's that. And I started in radio, radio when I was 15 years old. So it's, it's crazy, but I'm curious in all your years of, you know, martial arts, wrestling, everything you've been involved in, you know, all the places you traveled and fight quests and stuff. Is there one philosophy you've learned or picked up or maybe you come up with on your own that just rises to the top? It sticks with you. You always come back to it. Yeah. The Kung Fu instructor in China, he was like a 14th generation monk. Unbelievable. And what wow. he'd do is he'd speak Chinese. It was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in my life where he would look at you and he didn't speak English and he would speak Chinese. And you'd get what he was saying. Wow. That's just the cool. way he would speak. You'd go, like the translator tell me. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought he said. Wow. You know, just from like his body language mm -hmm. and da, da 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 whatever it is, like he just communicated with you, you know? It was effing weird. So I'm walking away from the Shaolin Temple. I'm about to go do my fight. I'm saying goodbye to everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I live there, by the way. Mm -hmm. That was not a put up either. I had somebody in um, who worked for Discovery Channel in Singapore said, where did you stay in Thailand when you were shooting Fight Quest? And I said, I stayed in a bunk bed at the gym and I, I bathed in a, in a trash bin. <laughs> and she goes, no, 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 when you weren't shooting. And I said, I stayed in a bunk bed <laughs> at the gym. It wasn't fake. They would leave. The camera crew would leave mm -hmm. and go, bye, Jimmy, and go to their hotel. And I stayed with the fighter. That's awesome. So I stayed at the Shaolin Temple in a little tiny monk room. Mm -hmm. And I'm leaving, and the master of this temple, the monk, the abbot, essentially, he turns to me, and he raises his hand. He's standing at the top of these steps, and he shouts down in Chinese something. And I turned to my translator. I said, what did he say? And he said, doesn't matter, Jimmy, if you ever do kung fu again. Be sure you're a good person. Nice. And it's always something to me where when people talk about martial arts, they talk about fighting or talk about this or talk about that. And I say... I haven't been in a street fight since high school. Why? I don't go running my mouth off like a fucking asshole. You would have to walk up to me while I'm minding my own fucking business and pick on me. I don't know if you know what I look like. Mm -hmm. I'm not oh, yeah. built like somebody you'd walk up and just pick on. Yeah. Like, even if you don't know that I fought professionally, I still look like I work out. And it's like, if you're honest with yourself, most of the times you've gotten in a fight, you were looking for one. You were being an asshole. You were drunk. You were belligerent. You were whatever. You were jealous. You were whatever. You're, you, the darkness or problem in you led to that confrontation. It probably didn't need to happen. Right. And I always tell people that. Oh, man, what, you know, what would you do in a street fight? What would you do? I haven't been in a street fight since I was 16. Why? I don't know. I don't act like I'm 12. My father, who could box, by the way, he was, he was a pretty good boxer, but he wasn't very big. He was maybe like five, 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 six, maybe. But he was like a scrappy dude. And what he used to tell me is he said, wolverines and bobcats have no natural predators. Not that a bear can't eat a bobcat or can't eat a wolverine. Mm -hmm. It's not worth the meat. Nice. Right? I like that. That was always my dad's philosophy. Fight so hard, it's not worth it. Fight so hard and give them a look like if you fuck with me, yeah, you might win, but you're, you know, you're not going to feel good tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And they'll leave you alone. I right? Like no, bears don't eat bobcats. Mm -hmm. They go, ah, it's not worth eating that thing. Could they? Sure. But it's not worth the wound you're going to get from a bobcat for the meat you get from eating a bobcat. Right. And like I tell people, it's about attitude. It's about respect. It's about your own self-respect and your own dignity keep you out of so many situations. I remember walking out of the, the Broadway gym in LA, in L.A. where I was training boxing, and it's in the middle of the hood in Inglewood. Mm -hmm. Bad neighborhood. And I'm going across the street. And it was like a movie. Five gangsters were sitting on my car. Yes, I'm coming out of a boxing gym, right? So yeah. I had a bag that said Broadway gym. It was obvious I was coming out of a boxing gym. And I looked at them and said, pardon me, gentlemen. I need to get to my car. And they looked at me like they had never been called gentlemen in their lives. And they got out of the way. I got in my car and drove off. Nice. I just said, pardon me, gentlemen. I need to get to my car. I wasn't afraid, but I wasn't disrespecting them. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, look freaked out. And I'm going to call the cops. You know, I said, Pardon me, gentlemen. You know, if you try to rob me, I'm going to fight you. You know, pretty obvious from, you know, where yeah. I'm coming from that if all five of you jump me, you know, five of you and one of me, but at least two of you are going to be in trouble tomorrow, right? <laughs> like, it's going to hurt you bad enough that you're not going to like it. And they all got out of the way and I got in my car and drove away. That's awesome. I you know, like if, if you're not looking for a problem, you won't find one usually. And right. I, I, that's what I try to teach people. What about this? What about that? Look, you make up a million stupid scenarios in your head. 
about what could happen and how you would need to fight and that like okay sure but nine times out of ten you can avoid a situation and there are situations where all the martial arts in the world ain't going to get you out of it right so like be ready for all that stuff so i think that sticks with me more is the idea of like where your head is Mm -hmm. in these spaces right and 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 walking into gyms where you've never been before and and don't know anybody and you got to spar and you know just okay just be respectful and take your ass whooping when you need to and and that's what martial arts teach you i think is sometimes you just can get your ass kicked and you just gotta just go meh and deal with the ass whooping and move on is more important than any technique you could ever learn because i I try to teach these kids i was like dude i've been housed man i don't know how many effing times i've just gotten creamed by somebody who was really good in this one you know specific art i did you know and Mm -hmm. and uh i was doing or whatever it's gotta check it off your list and move on and 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 that's that's the biggest man that is i like it so you mentioned two kids now did any of your kids get involved in martial arts at all well they're two and four oh okay still pretty young okay yeah i had kids pretty late in life okay um i'm just thinking of getting my girl involved she's four you know and and she's a big Mm four-year-old she's tall but another thing and people ask me this all the time I want to get my kid in MMA, and I always say, slow your roll. Mm-hmm. Don't. I saw kids fighting Muay Thai in Thailand that were like eight or nine years old. Wow, that had skill, mm-hmm. like they were good. And I went, really? Like, yeah. yeah, I know they're making more money than their parents make in a fucking week with what they make, and they're helping their family and stuff. But what we know about the development of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a concussion is much worse at nine than it is at yeah. you know, yeah, thirty. Definitely. I always tell parents, put your kid in something they like. And if they want to add to that and do MMA, great. Don't force them into combat sports. It's too difficult. It's too dangerous. It's too challenging. It's it's all these things for somebody that is there because their mommy wants them to. Right. You get what I'm saying? If you want your kid in soccer and they don't want to be in soccer, they're just going to look stupid on the field for an hour. Okay? Yeah. Like, if you put your kid in boxing and they don't want to be in boxing, they get this shit kicked out of them. That isn't worth it, you know? So I always say, put your kid in something, A, they enjoy. And B, make sure it's kid appropriate, meaning right. USA Boxing has a kid's boxing program. As you know, they have big headgear, these big puffy gloves, and coaches who are working with kids all the time. Jiu-Jitsu has the same thing, kids' classes where they're just kind of goofing around and doing stuff. And mm-hmm. make sure it's it's something kid appropriate, right? Because so many people put kids with, like, these murderers doing Muay Thai. And, like, they, dude, Muay Thai is just Muay Thai. They don't really have, like, kids' Muay Thai. So True. I'd hold off on that yeah. until they're ready. So stuff like that, put them in something they enjoy. And then if they gravitate to that, that's on them. But don't, don't force it on them. Like any other sport, don't. I was a baseball player, so you're going to be a baseball player. I think it's terrible. Yeah. So. All right. I got a few fun questions to wrap up. Sweet. Now, it doesn't have to be four. I've had as few as two and as many as eight. So just three, four, five names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> um. My Mount Rush, all right, to not put Bruce Lee is just absurd. You, <laughs> He's you probably the to. most picked one, so that's it's okay. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy. I would say just the way I think, and, and I'm being really biased here, Carlson Gracie, right? That's, nice. that's my lineage for my black belt. Yep. Um, he's a guy who took jujitsu, and, and all the great fight teams right now are kind of descended from him. So Dede Pendineris was a Carlson guy. He's Novignon which is Jose Aldo's team and some great fighters out of Brazil, and Henan Brown, those guys. Um, American top team, Ricardo Laborio, that's – and Conan Silveira were both Carlson Gracie guys. So Carlson was was like the first jiu-jitsu guy, first Gracie, to really have a great MMA team. Nice. So that's why I put him on my list. I think he's the bridge between MMA and, and jiu-jitsu. Okay. I would put – he is unbelievably revered in Japan. I'd put Masayama on there. Kyokushin. Very cool. Masayama, who is – yeah who he's like a god to them in Japan, but but really, really good. Great, actually, Kyokushin fighter and, and, you know, a legend in that. And then my number four, Ernesto Hust. Okay. Because K1, which was, you know, the the, the Japanese kickboxing, mm-hmm. it was just the biggest thing on earth. Yeah. Ernesto Hust was the man when it came to K1, man, and heavyweight kickboxing. He was absolutely unbelievable. I got to put number four. I got to put Ernesto Hust. So my four is Bruce Lee, Carlson Gracie, Masoyama, and uh, Ernesto Hust. That's a hell of a Mount Rushmore. I like it. I try. All right. How about a favorite martial arts book? Ooh, that's a good one. Matthew Polly has a great biography of Bruce Lee. Okay. That is, is really excellent. Check that out. Okay. Um, the Art of Expressing the Human Body by Bruce Lee is also fantastic. Those are the two that that it's war and it's martial arts. It's when I'm trying to think of which one I really want to go with here. Book of Five Rings is great. Okay. Yeah, but it's 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 war and martial arts. Yeah. But the Book of Five Rings, I would say those three would probably be my favorite. 
Yeah, okay. they're all great books. Cool. I read like a maniac. I'm always reading. So I used to. I used to read a book a week until I started the podcast. Now I've maybe read three books in the last two years. I just I spent all my free time doing the podcast. So <laughs> I need to get back to reading. Well, I think part of it too is, is I was when I was on the road, I would read constantly mm-hmm. because you're always in an airport. You're always you know you got a three hour delay, and I'm like, all right, I'll bring a book. Yep. You know, and I'm not I'm not a really social person, so. Rather than if I have to wait for something, if I'm stuck, I read a book because I just don't like waiting for no reason, you know? Yeah. So that's another one of my things. Yeah. Nice. How about a favorite martial arts video game? Are you ever a gamer? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I got to say all time and me and my, my best friend used to play this one all the time. Soul Calibur. Remember that one? The names. I don't think I ever played it, but I, I, oh, I, I recognize yeah. the name. That was like our favorite because it was a sword, Kurt Soul Calibur. So it was kind of martial arts weapons and like one guy was nunchucks and the other okay. guy was, was samurai swords. That was my favorite. Played that a million times. But me and my brother also, just the original Street Fighter and Street Fighter Alpha, we played that constantly as kids. Nice. All the time. And my brother and I, he kind of looks like Ryu and I kind of look like Ken. So I was Ken and he was Ryu and we'd fight, we'd fight each other. And it, it, that was our thing. It was That's great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Those martial arts video games, those are my favorite. Very cool. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Ooh, that's a good one. Wow. Um, you know what's funny? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, li- I'm, I'm going to go kind of modern on this one. I'm watching a show right now called Alice in Borderland. Do you know about it? No, I don't. Actually. Oh, my God. It's on Netflix. It's amazing. Really? Amazing. Called Alice in Borderland. It's a Japanese uh, show. And what it is is these people wake up and everybody's gone out of Tokyo. They're gone. Oh, wow. And just these few people are, are left, and there's these things where these games pop up. And you have to play these games, and if you survive, you get more time alive. Because when they call it your visa, and once your visa expires, you die. So you play these games, and the winner gets more time on their visa. But a lot of them, they integrate martial arts into it. Oh, cool. So there'll be this thing, like, you got to beat this guy. It's like a, like a video game in real life. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't beat this big boss, you die. And... When it comes to they, – they throw all these people in. They're like these martial arts. It's really cool. It's a cool – and it's got a lot of game theory. Mm-hmm. You have to trust the person you're with. So I'll describe one of the games. And if you're a dork, you'll like it because I'm a dork, okay? These people had these collars on, a collar around their neck. It's steel. It can't come off. Mm-hmm. And they can't turn it. And on the back, there's a little screen. And what it is is it's of the four suits, right? Clubs, diamonds, spades, hearts, right? Okay. And someone has to tell you what your – suit is and then you you guess your suit and if you're right you live if you don't the collar blows up <laughs> wow. but they have to kill this one person and they don't know who it is oh wow right the game is over when this one person dies but you don't know who it is and the game goes on until some so they have all this food and water and they're like mm-hmm. if game's not over till till you kill that person, well who do i kill do i trust the person who told me what mine is do i tell the person what theirs is am i accurate because one less person is one less person it, so the psychology of who do i trust and who do i it's brilliant but it, it integrates a lot of martial arts so i'm going to put that there before you even say it i'm going to tell you a martial arts movie that is underrated <laughs> okay that you might not even think of okay but if you've been in a fight it is shot it's one of the few fight i don't want to say fight movies but it, it, it it's around a fight that looks how a fight feels. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Snatch. Oh, great movie. The boxing scene in Snatch where it slows down and it's like, and then it's like, and suddenly it's really fast. That's how a fight feels. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you get hit and you're like, everything's going to, whoa. And mm-hmm. then when somebody throws a jab, and like, you're like, where the fuck did that jab come from? Right? Yep. The way it was shot by Guy Ritchie, it's one of the few fight sequences, the the bare knuckle scene with, with, with Brad Pitt and the, the, the big fat dude looks how a fight feels remember it would show it from his perspective and the audio would be like because you don't hear the crowd you just hear like this and i said god man they they really nailed it it's one of the best shot fight scenes ever is snatch the bare knuckle scene see that actually you just answered my last my final question is was favorite movie fight scene so you just you just answered that one but what about just a favorite martial arts movie yeah, well, I actually had a – and I, we actually had a, a fun conversation, me and my producer, about whether or not that's a fight movie or a gangster movie. Right. Because it, it's based around a fight, right, this bare knuckle fight. But mm-hmm. it's really a gangster movie. But the end scene of bare knuckle is one of the few a fighter will watch and go, yeah, that's what it's like. Yeah. Where time is like slows up and speed – you know, speeds up and slows down. You don't know – you're like – depending on what's happening. It's very true. Yeah, so that's my favorite. You were definitely the first one to pick Snatch I, for sure. I, I've had a few few. Odd ones like I had someone pick Princess Bride for favorite fight scene. 
which was oh that's great Andre i know the Giant. <laughs> yeah which yeah. was kind of cool so so yeah no that's awesome so before i let you go anything else maybe that i didn't get to mention or forgot to ask you that you want to get out there wow that's, that's a very broad i'm a, I'm a virgo you know um, <laughs> long walks no. on the beach <laughs> long walks on the beach yeah man it's it's um i'm just grateful that i'm able to be in martial arts for jesus 23 years 24 years because it, it's it's seen a lot of people come and go, man. I've seen a lot of stuff come and go. And I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of people not be able to make a living the way I made a living. Yeah. And I'm just eternally grateful for that and my ability to keep on chugging. Don't know how much longer, but I will keep on chugging as long as humanly possible. And you got to be grateful for that. And I am. Knowing how busy you are, I truly appreciate your time. Because I know, like you said, you're working five, six days a week sometimes with your three gigs and, and taking the time to, to do a podcast that you'd never heard of. I, I, I truly appreciate it because I, I love doing this and love talking to different people and hearing their stories and backgrounds and learning more about them. So it's, it's been a blast doing this. Appreciate you, man. Thanks a lot, bud. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.